This podcast is an unedited excerpt from an MCLE program presented at MCLE's Conference Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Get 24-7 instant access to over 500 business and commercial law e-lectures and more with a subscription to the MCLE Online Pass. Learn more at www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, please see the MCLE website. Uh, We'll probably get to it before you think. All right, so now, here's our (laughs) pre-COVID, now it's a lot of news, force majeure clause. Um, So, first things first. Am I covered by the force majeure? Yes, it is very possible that you're not covered by the force majeure, especially in a leasing environment. In fact, some of the clients that hit us during this time were saying, do I have to pay rent? And I looked up several leases, and in most of them, the landlord was excused from providing the space to uh, place to work or live, but the tenant was not relieved due to the force majeure event. The problem was they just signed whatever they were given and they did not negotiate it. Now, these were business-to-business leases, so they have the obligation to negotiate and to protect their rights. The courts, as they said, even in 9-11, not only do you have the obligation to negotiate, but if you make an oversight or don't think it through, or if you get something that's just about their terrorist act first act of war, tough. you got to get it right. So... The first thing we did is we, we popped open our, our contracts, we looked for limitation of liability, we looked for consequential damages, we looked for exclusive remedy, we understand what our general damages are going to be should something go wrong, but now we're going to look for force majeure to try to get out of any obligation under the contract, and that's what force majeure is intended to do. So, let's move on to the next topic. And this is where we will start to go into the analysis of the force majeure, and I will pass it over to Sarah. Okay, great. So unlike some of the civil law jurisdictions, the United States does not have any codified force majeure provisions in its statute. Therefore, the potential application of force majeure is going to be dictated by the specific context and the facts, and it's going to be controlled by the specific language in the contract as that's negotiated by the parties. Um, And there are many cases, lots of case law surrounding um, force majeure. And when you start looking at the case law, three key elements in court court applications becomes clear. And that's what we're gonna go through today because we thought that'd be most helpful. Um, And those three key elements of the court application is what constitutes a force majeure event, what conditions or obligations, if any, must be met or performed by the declaring party, and then what remedies are available or what consequences could apply upon the occurrence of an event of force majeure. So looking at element one, let's talk about what constitutes a force majeure event according to case law. A force majeure event is an event that is outside of the reasonable control of a party and that prevents the party from performing its obligations under a contract. Now, most force majeure clauses will contain broad descriptions of events, like the classic one is act of God. That's obviously very broad, 
like active government, natural disaster, even when you start describing events as an endemic or a, an epidemic rather, or a natural um, catastrophe, that's still a pretty broad description of the event. However, there is good reason to get more specific than that when you outline what constitutes a force majeure event in your clause. As Frank was talking about when he um, told us about that 9-11 case, uh, the courts, they're just not very kind to you when you don't specify what you mean by force majeure event. The express provisions of the clause usually do prevail. Sometimes the broader descriptions will work in your favor. So for example, if you're a party wishing to invoke a force majeure clause because of COVID-19 and your clause says pandemic, which is pretty broad, um, as one of the unforeseen events, you're in good shape. Um, but as we can see in that case, when you start to narrow down the description, then the clause may in fact become less protective. So Frank, let's take a look to see what we've got in our clause. Oh, you're muted. Oh, it just pulled me. All right, so looking at our, our, our standard clause that we were using that our clients had, we did, in fact, list out um, different events. Now, luckily, first of all, we learned from 9-11. We learned from 9-11. Come on. <laughs> there we go. We learned from 9-11, and we did, in fact, have terrorist acts specifically listed. Um, now, but did we foresee the event that was happening? Well, we had epidemic. So that is something that we, we feel like we do have some protection and we will take a look and we'll do an analysis of whether we have the proper protection under that first element of what constitutes a force majeure. So we have epidemic, but COVID is a pandemic. So the question is, are we covered? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know, but now I feel like I do. So what I did is I went to what I would feel is the definitive source that any court or judge would look to as what is really an epidemic and what is really a pandemic. And so I went to the Center for Disease Control and they, again, I'm very shocked at how quick and how good the government is, they uh, had lessons on epidemiology for uh, anybody. So you can go to this webpage and you can see various, <laughs> you can see various charts and and then you can even take a quiz to test your knowledge of whether you know the difference between a sporadic disease, an endemic, a hyperdemic, a pandemic, uh, epidemic. So based on spending a little time on the CDC website, I took a look at it and I basically extracted what they said in, into a, a um, more commonly used definition. And you'll see these used pretty much throughout the web as people are talking about this. All right, so we have epidemic. Epidemic is an occurrence of an, infection, an infectious disease among a particular, I mean, we have epidemic. It's an occurrence of an infectious disease within a region, right? So we are covered. All right, so catch-alls, we'll get to as well. <laughs> so someone else just asked, what about catch-alls, like, or any other clause beyond the parties you have control? First of all, I love the excitement around force majeure. <laughs> we will definitely get to that, but we're still on just the list. So let's get to the first one and we'll get to the catch-all. All right, so, <laughs> we're, so we have an epidemic and we're wondering if uh, the infectious disease for a particular, uh, I mean, epidemic, which occurs in an infectious disease within a region, but we're living in a pandemic world right now. So the question is, does our force majeure cover us? 
will the 9-11 courts be so strict as to say, sorry, just like where they said terrorist act is not act of war, um, pandemic and epidemic are not the same. But if you then diagram out what the CDC is saying about these different clauses, there we go, <laughs> you can see that pandemic is sort of the superset. Well, not sort of, it is the superset. It is the largest scale um, disease infection that hits the world or hits the country. Endemic, which I actually didn't really understand quite so well, is it hits a particular people. So it's only going to hit people who have blue eyes as opposed to brown eyes. But if you're in the business of making um, blue eye sunglasses, yeah, that and you can only have blue eye people work on it, then you you you're affected. So in a pandemic, it would actually include epidemics. So I think our clause, if we had epidemic and pandemic, we would be covered. Um, I mean, endemic and pandemic. Now. What about epidemic? So an epidemic overlaps with endemic, and it is basically an infectious disease within a region. Um, now, if we have a pandemic, therefore the entire United States, the entire world is being affected by COVID, I think it's pretty obvious to say that we also have an epidemic because my region is affected. So Massachusetts is affected. So I feel like since we have epidemic listed and we're living in a pandemic, it would be really a hard stretch for the courts to say, no, you're in a pandemic, not an epidemic, but I can obviously argue, well, we're also in an epidemic in my region. Now, the other thing is there's a smaller subset within epidemic, which is an outbreak. And that would be, say, Boston has an outbreak, but it doesn't affect Massachusetts. So in that situation, in this, if my force majeure said outbreak, I think uh, we would be, uh, we would, in this situation, if the outbreak occurred and I had epidemic in my force majeure clause, I would still say I was covered. However, if I was trying to use an outbreak as the force majeure and it never raised to the level of an epidemic, and my force majeure clause says epidemic, I would not be covered. Because 9-11 says you really have to get, the Cancer Fitzgerald case says, you really have to get it just right. So if I'm going to take a look at the situation uh, based on what happened in COVID, what happened during the Black Plague, and what happened um, during Cancer Fitzgerald, and I'm going to just realize that I need to really redraft my clause. So let's go back to my clause. This is what it was before. It just said epidemic. Based on what I learned from the CDC, I'm going to redraft it, and I'm going to add in endemic, epidemic, and outbreak. So it has pandemic, endemic, epidemic, and outbreak. So that way, I'm covered. Now, if a pandemic hits, I'm covered in all situations, but I want to be able to trigger my force majeure should there be an outbreak and epidemic or an endemic. So you want to go from the smallest of the, of the Venn diagram upwards within your force majeure. Now, as lawyers, right, luckily we put endemic or I mean, pandemic into our force majeure before it happened. The question is, well, what do we have to think of next, right? So yeah, we have terrorist acts. Maybe it wasn't there before 9-11. We have endemic. So I was sitting there trying to figure out what should we else should we put in the clause? Well, I was already up on the CDC website, so I was looking around to see what they say we might be concerned about, and who knew the CDC has a really good sense of humor? Um, they have a whole set of uh, web pages on zombie preparedness, and if you go to the CDC website, they really went uh, the, the extra mile on this. They have blogs, they have video presentations on what to do, they have a graphic novel, and they even have posters that you can put in your workplace. So you can put that right next to your coffee machine or your refrigerator to get your, your staff ready for the next one. Now, 
did I put zombie apocalypse into our new force majeure clause? No. <laughs> but maybe you should. I would be immensely proud of myself if I start seeing zombie apocalypse in people's force majeure clause moving forward. Um, and therefore, <laughs> uh, okay, we had a question. Even if it says epidemic, is there a legal basis to argue that the parties nonetheless would have intended for it to apply to a pandemic, which is even bigger event, they are not epidemiologists? Well, if I look at the Cantor Fitzgerald as the story decisis, I would say no, because a terrorist act could absolutely be the predecessor to an act of war. And in fact, attacking a country under a terrorist act is what's often called an act of war. So you could make that argument. Of course you can make that argument. But if you intend something and you don't write it, as Sarah says, the courts are very just merciless between a business and business contract. Get it right or tough. And, and that's kind of like the gist of force majeure throughout time. So you could argue it. But again, intent doesn't really apply because, as we all know, in contract, it's the four corners. And most contracts will have an integration law. And even if you have like two theses that going back and forth while you're negotiating about pandemic and epidemic, that's not going to be allowed in. That's going to be parole evidence outside the four corners. So therefore, it really is, well, I wouldn't want to be the judge, but I would make that argument and I would definitely... Uh, you know, change the clause moving forward. So again, though, if the, staff, if the audience here were to write zombie apocalypse in force majeure, I would be very proud, but I'm not gonna do it myself. <laughs> Our clients would appreciate it. All right, so now we have drafted the conditions and obligations of the force majeure, check. Let's move on to the next element where Sarah will discuss. Okay, yes, it's hard to follow zombies, but uh, <laughs> anything you say after zombies is going to be very boring. But if you are a party who wants to invoke a force majeure clause, what do you need to do or show? That's the second thing we want to talk about here. Generally speaking, you have to show that you try to avoid the event or the consequences, or you try to mitigate those consequences. So the case law surrounding force majeure has consistently shown that it's not enough to say, for example, well, COVID-19 has shut down the country, so I'm going to invoke my force majeure clause. You're going to need to show that not only does COVID-19 affect your ability to perform under the contract, but also that you tried to find another way that you could perform or you tried to mitigate. A great example of a way in which you might not prevail with the force majeure clause is where your inability to perform is only temporary. So a temporary disability might not permanently excuse your performance. And in many force majeure cases, courts have stressed that when a disability is resolved, then your performance has to continue. And this goes back 80 years already, but there is a classic depression era case coming out of World War II called Slaughter versus CIT Corp, where the state and federal governments had ordered banks to shut down because of World War II. And when a bank relied on the shutdown to justify its non-performance of the contract, the court said, well, hold on, that non-performance can only be excused for the length of the shutdown and not beyond. So this is another thing that you're gonna want to address when you're drafting these force majeure contracts. Now, before we jump ahead, we have a, a very interesting question. One of the um, audience asked, would you recommend naming COVID-19 specifically in the force majeure clause for the benefit of the doubt? I would recommend against that. The reason being is if we look back at the force majeure clause, it talks about unforeseeable events, right? So if we're naming the actual virus that is affecting us, 
it's hard to believe that we would consider that unforeseeable. So I'm just going to jump back to that clause. And in that clause, you'll see that the force majeure, by its nature, is beyond the party's foreseeable control, including but not limited to. Right? So if you put COVID-19 into the contract, well, I think it's very foreseeable that you would have been affected by COVID-19. The other thing is, it's a little bit too late. Right? So if you were to put COVID-19 into this, that means you're going to protect us from future outbreaks of COVID-19, but not from the ones that's going on right now. And further, the next disease might not be called COVID-19, and if it mutates, it might be called COVID-19A, B, or they might come up with a whole other name. And since the names are pretty much just arbitrarily handed out by the media, I mean, it was called the coronavirus originally, but I think um, I think Anheuser-Busch had a problem with that, and they were listening to us talking beer, that they started changing, they lobbied the media to call it COVID-19, uh, which was the more technical name. So I would not recommend that. Okay, sorry, sir, let's jump back into uh, the conditions and obligations. So let's take a look at our force majeure clause. Did we discuss conditions and obligations? Well, no, <laughs> and we didn't get it. So what we have to do is we're gonna have to redraft our clause to talk about the conditions and the obligations should a force majeure event occur. So now, to be fair, every time you get a client, they come to you and say, the contract's too long and we can't make sales. So you have to be careful with the real estate. Now, if you look online, you're going to see quite a lot of force majeure clauses. And um, and, and you're basically, you can make a book out of this, right? But if my standard template has a whole page clause on force majeure, I think my clients would probably kick me out the door. Half the time, they're even wondering why there's boilerplate at all, and they want to just take it out. Um, this is why the contracts, the font gets smaller and smaller smaller. Um, so, so in redrafting this, I want to make sure I'm very um, aware that I do not want to take up too much real estate, but this is force majeure. We're talking big bucks, right? Cantor Fitzgerald lost seven figures based on the fact that this one clause wasn't negotiated right. So we're going to have to take a little extra time to, to be um, careful with it, but we got to be brief. So brevity is our friend in this situation. All right. So redrafting the clause. I added this. So as a condition for uh, triggering a force majeure clause, I, I'm going to put on the obligation of one party to provide 15 days calendar, uh, calendar days notice that a force majeure event has occurred. So when the pandemic hits and you know your factory is closed or your employees can't get to work, you need to write a letter to the contracts that you um, are in and say, by the way, I'm being affected by a force majeure event. I'm in the United States. It started in, uh, you know, in China. I moved to Italy. So if my factory is in Italy, I would expect a letter from Italy to come hit my client in the United States because I haven't hit the United States yet, saying we're being affected by a pandemic, and it, here's, uh, it happened 15 days ago. It's affecting us. And then you need to give, and I added the standard of good faith estimate of the expected time of the force majeure event. And I, I'm redefining it as an impact using a defined term. Just in case you're new to dra drafting contracts, capitalized terms are defined terms, and that's why you capitalize them. So everywhere else in the contract where you see impact, it's you substitute in your mind uh, is the, the estimated uh, time and delay and material degradation because of the force majeure event. All right, now, what are, that is the condition, right? The condition that exercises force majeure clause is that I have to give notice. But what is the impact? Well, the impact is that I will use, um, what is the obligation? I will use commercially reasonable efforts to mitigate the impact. 
So I'm being very broad, very uh, vague in this, but I'm in a sense that I'm protecting both parties by saying it's a force majeure event. I don't know what I need to do, but what I will do is I will do what's commercially reasonable. Now, lawyers will spend a lot of time arguing about these different standards. You have best efforts, you have commercially reasonable, you have due diligence, all due diligence, prudent, right? So you can put in what matches what is best for your industry. My go-to is tends to be commercially reasonable because if I'm not gonna make fiscal sense, why would I do it? It would be better for me to just get out of the contract. But if you put best efforts, then you're gonna be looking beyond the commercial reasonability of it. So you wanna be careful of the standard you put there. So now we have our second redraft of our force majeure clause, and now we're considering the first two elements. So let's take a look, check. We have the force majeure event, and we have the conditions and obligations. So now back to Sarah to explain remedy and consequences. Okay. Yeah, so finally, let's take a look at what remedies are available to me when I invoke a force majeure clause and then what consequences might apply. So this is going to depend on your duties under the contract and also on any express provisions that you added to your force majeure clause. Um, contractual remedies might include time extensions, that's when you see a lot, or maybe an agreed upon period of time to pause the performance. We know we have a duty to mitigate. And we also know that um, just a temporary disability might not excuse performance, a partial disability might not excuse performance either. Unless a business is entirely shut down and unable to perform at all, courts may not excuse the performance. And in many cases, at least some portion of performance remains an option. For example, right now with COVID, we're seeing a lot of businesses attempt partial performance. Um, and one of the ones that I think everyone's seeing right now under the COVID restrictions is the restaurants who are prohibited from serving their dine-in guests because of the state orders, which are offering now takeout food. Another example is if your business was shut down under um, the governmental orders because it was deemed, um, it wasn't deemed essential, like what Frank was saying, we had a lot of clients like this earlier this year. Did you mitigate by trying to get an exception or an exemption rather? Force majeure case law clearly shows that courts expect parties to partially perform and to seek these performance remedies when it's possible. So it's great if you can think of some of these issues ahead of time and then put in those express provisions into your clause so that some of these partial or temporary performances are already spelled out for you. So let's take a look at our clause again and see what we have there as far as remedies. So looking at our clause, did we anticipate defining the remedies and the consequences should there be a force majeure event? And did we? No, <laughs> we didn't. So we need to redraft it again. But this is starting to take up quite a bit of room. So I'm again, brevity is my friend, but you know, this is a very important situation. So we're gonna need to address it. Now, before that, I sort of glossed over it. I want to answer this question I came through because it's a very good one. It, the question was, what about catch-alls? Like, any other cause beyond the party's foreseeable control, right? And if you look at it, it says right there, other clauses beyond the party's reasonable foreseeable control. But that becomes an evidentiary battle, right? So COVID opened up in China and it went to Italy and for months well, we were walking around like nothing was a problem, right? So is it foreseeable that this virus would carry over to the United States? Well, that's gonna be a fight in court. And how do you feel about um, vagueness on a force majeure clause, Sarah? Do you think the courts are gonna be? No, I mean, that's the 
thing is it really truly has been shown over time <laughs> um, that that the express provisions are the ones that prevail. Everything else has to be argued. And you know, good luck arguing it. And like you said too, contracts, there's an assumption they're meant to be kept. And so it's, it's an uphill battle. Now, the other thing is, and I didn't really, I do, this would be a whole nother topic, but there is a doctrine called contra pentorium, which is, I'm mispronouncing slightly, but it basically is Latin for all vagueness will be construed against the drafter of the contract. And you might see in some of the other boilerplate that it says neither party will be considered the drafter of this contract. That's contra pentorium or pentorium, whatever. I'll have to look it up later. Uh, so if you are the drafter of the contract, this is your contract, and it says other causes beyond the party's reasonable foreseeable control, you are now at a disability because the rebuttable presumption under that is that the non-drafter's interpretation of that is going to prevail, right? So it depends on what side of the, the, the situation you are. Yes, put it in. Yes, you might win the evidentiary battle, but it's better not to rely on it. Um, and that's why you need to try to grab the greater sweeping issues um, and make sure they're covered, but also think out of the very specific issues that might affect you. So the sweeping issue is pandemic. The specific ones are endemic, epidemic, and outbreak, and you have to approach it from both sides. All right, so to thank you. Sorry, I glossed over that answer. All right, so now back to remedies and conditions. The remedies and conditions um, that I'm going to add to our clause, which failed to have them, are as follows. As follows. There you go. <laughs> so, again, real estate is tight. So I'm going to try to be as brief, and I'm going to try to be as sweeping as possible. Um, now, if this is a business-to-business -business contract for a million-dollar construction job, not a template that's being posted for the, the you know, consumption of products or services that is commoditized, I'm going to spend a lot more time on this, right? I'm going to try to anticipate the needs, but I, I don't know those right now because this isn't for a, you know, a major contract. And But if you have more context, then be more specific, and you care less about real estate and more about you know getting what would really be right for your client. But unfortunately, that's a variable based on the situation. So... Based on this being a template, and I'm trying to protect my uh, provider of devices, services, and software, um, I'm going to just be broad and say, all right, what are the remedies and what are the consequences? Well, the remedy would be that I get to terminate this contract. A force majeure event happened. It's going to be commercially unreasonable for me to perform under it, so that means it would cost me money. Not that I can't, but it would cost too much to. And then my remedy would be that I can terminate this contract. Well, what happens to the consequences, right? All right, terminate it. Well, now I'm trying to be very broad and say, well, there are no consequences. I'm going to just disclaim them all. Say there are no, there is no penalty or liability. Now, that's, I think that's what you're going to need to say if you want to get it down to zero. If not, you're going to have to go back and look at your, um, if you're rear silent on this, we'd have to go back and take a look at the limitation of liabilities, consequential damage, exclusive remedy, disclaimer warranties, all the other things that showed us what were our leverage initially going into the cause. But with this very short but broad clause, I think I'm protecting my client by giving them the remedy of the con to terminate the contract with the consequences of being none. So did we address the second one? Third one? Check. All right. So now back to the question that asked, uh, is there an implied uh, 
force majeure benefit. So let's say our clause does not, we, our clause either doesn't specify what's going on or we don't have a force majeure clause at all or it's a unilateral force majeure clause and we're, the other party's protected but we're not. There are some arguments in contract law and Sarah's going to talk, talk us through this. Yeah, so in the event that a party is unable to assert a force majeure clause, like Frank said, either yours thinks or um, you just don't have one, there are several closely related common law doctrines that are going to apply, and those are impossibility, impracticability, and frustration of purpose. And I just want to quickly look over these. Um, impossibility is the toughest one, and for impossibility, the courts will look at three elements. So first of all, something expected must have occurred. Um, secondly, the risk of this unexpected occurrence must not have been due to the negligence of either party. And then thirdly, the circumstance must have been, um, must have rendered performance under the contract impossible. And when you think about impossible, you know, there aren't too many situations where performance is completely impossible, but there are some. So some examples would be if a party is injured and can no longer perform the duties identified in the contract or if the property is stolen or destroyed. For example, a contract for home remodeling that can no longer be performed if the home is destroyed. And interestingly, when I was looking into this, um, I, 2020 has been so crazy. And I think we forgot that we started the year with those Australian bushfires. <laughs> and I started to see, um, all, so in Australia, they had horrible fires and I saw some cases arising from um, companies in Australia that were asserting whether or not they had a force majeure clause, they were asserting impossibility as a contractual defense because their entire company was just burned to ground. So that's a good um, example of impossibility. However, more often circumstances create a situation that is not technically impossible, but better described as impracticable. And for this reason, many courts have moved beyond requiring strict impossibility and recognize the doctrine of commercial impracticability. And this doctrine has been codified in the UCC. It's called excuse by failure of presupposed um, conditions. So under both common law and the UCC, to assert a defense of impracticability, you have to show a number of things. You have to show a supervening event, either an act of God or an act of a third party that made your performance impracticable. You have to show that the non-occurrence of the event was a basic assumption upon which the contract is based. You have to show that the occurrence of the event was not your fault and that you did not assume the risk of the occurrence and also that you have taken reasonable efforts to overcome the obstacle. So here again, we see this um, need to show that you have tried to mitigate. Under the doctrine of impracticability, performance will not be excused if this disruptive event was foreseeable for example, um, let's say costs increased, well, that's not enough. Or let's even say that the market uh, collapsed, which does seem that's very destructive, but rise or collapse of market too has not been shown to be enough because these things are you know, foreseeable. Some circumstances which courts have held to be impracticable include severe shortages of raw material due to war, embargo, crop failure, or a shutdown of major sources of supply. And now I haven't looked into this, but it strikes me that with COVID, we actually have seen um, shortages, particularly surrounding like personal protective wear, um, hand sanitizer, toilet paper. <laughs> We've seen a lot of these shortage issues. And I would guess that 
um, the defense of impracticability would be appropriate there. And then finally, we have the defense of frustration of purpose. Now, unlike impossibility or impracticability, which both involve duties, frustration of purpose specifically involves the reason for the contract. In order for frustration of purpose to apply, both parties must have been aware of the primary purpose of the contract to begin with. And then to discharge performance under this doctrine, you have requirements. Um, the first one is that the frustration must relate to the principal purpose of the party in making the contract, which just basically means like if both parties have to understand that this contract wouldn't make any sense without this object that has been frustrated. Um, secondly, the frustration has to be substantial, so it's definitely not enough under case law that the transaction has become less profitable than we expected it would be. And then thirdly, that the non-occurrence of this frustrating event must have been a basic assumption on which the contract was made. So frustration is not a defense if the intervening frustration was controlled or controllable rather by the promisor or if counterperformance remains valuable. So here again, you see the need to mitigate. And then the best example where frustration of purpose comes in would be, um, another, we're seeing this too, business closures, cancellations of events. Now, when you look at these three defenses, um, it's important to know that all three of these um, that this defense may be temporary and suspend your duty to perform only while the impossibility, the impracticability, or the frustration exists. Once it's gone, you're on the hook again. Oh, you're muted, it's fine. All right, so uh, these are your, basically these three theories encompass your implied force majeure. These are contract theories, and they will get you out of your obligations on a short-term basis, as Sarah said, and you have to prove these. Now, again, remember that if this is your contract, any ambiguity is going to be uh, viewed in the best light of the other party. So, again, you had your catch-all, but whether or not it's going to work, you don't know, but that is on your force majeure clause. These are outside the force majeure clause, but within contract law still. So, these are the things that you can argue that makes the contract unenforceable for that short term of time. Now, let's say you either don't have a force majeure clause. Let's say you have a force majeure clause. It doesn't protect you. Let's say you have a force majeure clause and the clause doesn't protect you because you didn't list it outright. Uh, or maybe you were silent as to the remedy, the notice, and you've also put up all your contract defenses on impossibility and practicability and frustration of purpose. Now what, right? Well, you're not quite done with all your defenses. There's one last defense. And we can go back to the Black Plague think about the, think for this. And what happened was, if you recall, the first thing we talked about was quantum Merowith. That was a concept that came out of the Black Plague, and it's outside contract law. This is an idea that says um, I, you're getting value for something. It's outside the contract. I did something for you, and there's an inherent value of it. Now, chances are it's not going to be for the same value that the contract says, and it's going to have to be argued what that value is, but you still would be able to bring a quantum merit case against the other party to say, at least for what I did, you got the value and I need to be compensated for that. So you aren't left high and dry completely. But knowing that, changing your contract moving forward to the new um, force majeure clause is the prudent and the right thing to do for your clients, and you understand that you have at least one small clause that your client doesn't care about that has multiple factors that we talked about for an hour that um, can protect your client. 
So it's much more important than you would think. And, uh, you know, thank you for the Black Plague. There was at least one good thing that came out of it, which was quantum merit. And by the way, back in when the Black Plague days, they called it assumption, right? It wasn't called quantum merit. That was the evolution over time. But they had an assumption. It was an assumption of value. Or, and it actually stands for something like he undertook. So that's what assumption means. He undertook something and you got the benefit of that. Now, if you enjoy this topic like Sarah and I do, um, we have in, in the materials that will be posted, there's about 101 pages of information more on the Black Plague, uh, uh, coronavirus, force majeure, negotiating contracts. It's all there, or you can always just reach out to us um, and we will happily answer questions because obviously it's something that we enjoy. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm going to open the floor for any questions, and another one just came in, uh, and I think this one's for you, Sarah. It says, is impossibility precluded if you have a force majeure clause is more specific and doesn't help you? Okay, well, I, unfortunately, I just answered that, right? So <laughs> the answer is no, right? Because these are contract theories, and these are the things that you go to when you are outside the protection of your contract. So no, it's not precluded. Um, but uh, yeah, so these are sort of the last Hail Mary throws, say, is impossibility. Well, actually, quantum merit would be, but these are sort of the second to last throws to protect you. Much better off with a more specific clause, but um, if you don't, you would not want to forget these, and you definitely would want to argue. All right, we have a little extra time. Does anyone want to discuss the Black Plague any further? Feel free. <laughs> or COVID or 9-11. Um, if there are no more questions, Sarah, do you have any other uh, points that you want to bring up that we may have forgotten about? Um, no, I just want to say that in um, the research that we've done, people across the whole nation, I mean, this is, everyone is talking about this. It's very important. I don't see it going away at all because um, things still remain very uncertain uh, with COVID. And I really do think it is, it's, it's a good time to take a look at this provision that this clause that I don't think most of us gave a second thought to, you know, in, in 2019. And certainly now it's just become um, a hot topic issue. It's just, it's, there's lots of people talking about it, writing about it. I know Frank and I are definitely amending the clause that we use. We are actually just proactively pushing out new clauses to our clients and saying, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we, we've learned something from this whole event, and, you know, here's your new clause. Um, and, it, you know, I feel like it's an obligation. 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 You know, I feel like it's...